Hi everyone, thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week, we have exclusive interviews with your favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. I'm your host, Amin O'Malley. Today is exciting because we have a special guest, Professor Ann Wolbert Burgess. Professor Burgess is an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse, and has worked with FBI Academy special agents to study serial offenders and the correlation between child abuse, juvenile delinquency, and subsequent perpetration. In addition, she released her new true crime book called A Killer by Design, Murderers, Mindhunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind, which was a pick for the best book of the month in December 2021. Thank you for being here, Professor Burgess. Can you give a brief introduction about yourself? Happy to. Uh, I am Ann Burgess. I am a professor in the Canal School of Nursing here at Boston College. I uh, have been here for uh, since 2001 and delighted to be here. And uh, actually, one of the reasons that we're on today is I have found my writers to help me with the book uh, right in the School of Nursing. And my co-author is uh, Stephen Constantine. That's great. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Um, and I know, um, obviously, I've seen so much about your, your career um, online just from reading about you. But um, can you give kind of a brief background about your work for uh, listeners who maybe don't know uh, as much about you? <laughs> oh, sure. Um, by basic, uh, contrary to Mindhunter, where my character is played by uh, Dr. Wendy Carr. Contrary to that, I am not a psychologist. I am a psychiatric nurse, and I like to make sure people understand that by, by basic training, I am a nurse uh, with a specialty in psychiatric mental health nursing. And I uh, came to BC uh, right after finishing my uh, doctorate. I had been at undergraduate at uh, Boston University and uh, doctorate at Boston University, but master's at University of Maryland in Baltimore. So that's my professional background. And so when I came to BC uh, as an academic, as an assistant professor, one of the more fortunate things is I ran into a Linda Lytle Holmstrom, who was in our in your social uh, sociology department. And she was just finishing her doctorate and was looking for a new research project. And she's the one that had asked me if I'd like to join her on a research project studying rape victims. And at the time I said, well, I, I didn't know what was what she knew obviously about it. And she told me that she knew it was gonna be a big issue for women, that the women's movement, the second women's movement was really taking this on as a, a, a major uh, initiative. And so she had been going into what they called in those days, consciousness raising groups. And that was something where women would gather together and talk about things that they never had talked about before. And one of those topics had to be sexual assault. So uh, I was able to find access, get some access to victims through my hospital work, my hospital connections, where she had she'd been trying to find victims, but victims are a very silent group. It's no different now. It's very hard. It's very hard for men and women to come forward with uh, sexual assault. So anyway, we began our study at Boston uh, City Hospital at the time. That was the name of it. It's now Boston Medical Center. And we saw over a, over a year, 70, 146 people from the age of three to the age of 73. So we had what is considered a very good sample. It was well represented by race, by um, 
majority, of course, were female. We did have some males, but the majority were females. And that was the basis, if you will, for our work when we published on it. And one of the good things about the publication, published our first paper in American Journal of Nursing. And that was picked up, if you can imagine, by the FBI. Uh, now, you might wonder, why is the FBI reading American Journal of Nursing? Well, they really weren't re reading it. They were pointed to it. One of the law enforcement officers, that uh, Roy Hazelwood, who was the person that really brought me into the behavioral science unit, was a detective that had been a nurse, was still a nurse, but then had um, continued to keep her clinical skills up by working in the emergency room in the local hospital in Los Angeles. And it was a slow night, one night, I guess, just before she met up with uh, Roy Hazelwood and she was reading the article, this little article. I can't emphasize enough how it was just a very simple article about what we were finding in uh, talking with rape victims. And so uh, Rita, the, the detective, told Roy to call me if he wanted. I think she also she might have sent him the article. But at any rate, I get this call. Next thing I know, I get this call from the FBI, which was very unnerving, I should say, in the middle of the day to say the FBI was calling me. Um, and with great, great kind of hesitation, I answered it and said, uh, what could I do? And they they use this. I, I swear they, they take a class in how to talk on the telephone because it's really a little very, very intimidating until I finally I, I uh told him who I was. And yes, I had written that article, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And so he invited me down to the FBI Academy. And at first I was hesitant. Up to that time, I hadn't talked to many male groups. You know, this was something that really women and crisis workers were working with. But uh, I was curious actually about what they were teaching their agents about rape since I had been immersed in it, if you will, for the whole year of doing the research. So I went down and sure enough, I was the only woman there. Um, I think in the audience, there might've been a couple of secretaries, uh, female secretaries, but it really is. A, and there are all these FBI agents and they're sitting there in their little shirts and their little uh, <laughs> identification badges and so forth. But it worked. Uh, it worked in that they invited me back and then they invited me to help them with some of their research. That's, yeah, so that's, that's how I get, that's how I get to the FBI. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, it sounds like such a, an interesting process. I mean, kind of getting that phone call. I mean, I couldn't imagine what was going through your mind and um, just the whole, how, whole experience. How would, how would you like to get a call from the FBI? <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah. I feel like most welcome. Do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, and obviously you've talked a lot about um, kind of the victim impact, um, especially with sexual abuse, um, which was a pretty revolutionary concept at the time because people weren't really focusing on the victims. It was mostly about abusers or just wasn't being talked about at all. Um, what was that kind of experience? Like what, like how exactly did you go about um, talking with victims and kind of analyzing that um, as, as kind of from the victim's perspective rather than the abuser? Right. And that you're absolutely correct. Um, not much very little had been written from the victim standpoint. I think there were three little articles that we could ever find just doing a search. And the other thing is, don't forget the FBI or law enforcement is after the suspect, after the, the rapist, if you will. They don't talk, or they hadn't at that point, talked much with victims. 
And because of my work with Linda and rape victims coming into Boston City Hospital, we did talk to them about what they what the experience was like, and that's what we wrote up. And we were able to come up with a typology. So a, a rape, a rape, a rape, you know, there's various levels of rape, et cetera. And that was helpful. And then how victims coped with it, we divided into three sections before the rape, during the rape, and after the rape, so that we could give a fuller picture of the trauma and the experience. And that's exactly what I would tell the agents. And I said, you can get so much information about the suspect. They didn't realize that the type of information. And in fact, uh, Roy Hazelwood, who, as I said, had invited me down there, and I wrote a textbook actually over the whole course of, of the, the years down there, went into five different editions. So we kept updating it with more and more. And Roy added from his perspective on the offender and I added from the victim's standpoint. So we felt that getting a textbook out for law enforcement, which was one of the first, again, like you said, there was nothing in anybody's discipline on it. That helped to really uh, educate a lot of law enforcement. So what was it like? Well, it was uh, just telling the story. It, it was not hard, if you will, to, to tell the story. Uh, it was more um, kind of a quasi-qualitative, quantified type sample where we would do some me measurement, but basically was just looking at the patterns, of you will, of, of victims and, and helping people to be able to talk to victims. They, a lot of times they didn't know what to say. And probably the other important thing is out of that whole experience really was born the sexual assault nurse examiners, what are called the SANES. And uh, this was important because now they're, they're nationwide. Uh, we learned that it was far easier to train nurses because they had the background for being very detailed, knowing what how to collect evidence, et cetera. And they stayed around and would, were willing to go into court. Whereas before they had uh, physician uh, residents, what they would call. And after they did their three months, they'd be gone to another service. So they weren't, it was hard to get them to get, get to court. So I, I think that that was one, not only the saints, which is the evidence piece of sexual assault, but also the counseling part. Uh, Linda and I counseled the victims in our first year and second year, we taught the nurses at Boston City to continue our counseling program. So we really felt we had contributed, if you will, to um, an, uh, an unserved at the time population. Yeah, that, that's really great. And it's it's really cool to see kind of how it's grown over time. Um, it's still not perfectly there yet, but it's it's obviously um, really grown through um, counseling like, like you've done. Um, so that's really great. Um, and I know you also kind of um, had, a, had a role in um, interviewing or the methodology behind uh, interviewing serial killers um, and kind of the abusers on on kind of the more extreme cases. Um, what were some of the tactics like in your preparation process? Um, how did those kind of interviews go? What did you analyze? What was that like? Yeah, well, that was the project. Uh, we actually had two goals in that uh, profiling project, if you will, or the, I guess we were calling it the criminal personality project with uh, Bob Ressler and John Douglas. And uh, the first part was where we designed a 57 page questionnaire that was color-coded. You'd appreciate that. We had to have color so we could say, <laughs> the agents know it's the pink 
or the yellow or the green section that you have to fill out. <laughs> and everybody would, would contribute. What was so good about it is they had access to all of these suspects' background. So they knew when they went in to interview they, that those guys couldn't put something over on them. You know, it's like, um, uh, what's his name? David Berkowitz, you know, he kept saying it was this ancient dog that was telling him to kill people. And I remember uh, wrestler Douglas saying, come on, David, that's just a bunch of hooey. Probably not in those words, but, uh, you know, you got to. Uh, so they would catch them and quickly. They knew that the agents knew more about them than they couldn't fool them. And I think the other important thing is male authority going in because these were a lot of these men. We had 36. We started with a number, I think, like 82 and narrowed it down. I had to go through it, look them up and all of that. I had I had a staff up here at Boston City and got 36 that we knew we could get interviews with. So and at that time, 36 serial killers was pretty, imp pretty impressive. Uh, nobody was studying them. I mean, they were running around the countryside, but uh, so anyway, that's that was uh, the first part. And we wrote a book and the book was sexual homicide. We found out what was motivating these. At the time, they were called murder without motive. These were very hard murders for law enforcement to figure out, you know, who was it, a, who, who, what to look for. It wasn't robbery. It wasn't uh, you know, any of the other categories. So that was a major, we felt, uh, a contribution. Now, the second part was where we were working on the profiling. And th those uh, th that experience was really interesting because they would uh, get a table. They had this big table and they put all the crime scenes out and then they'd stand around it and they'd, they'd feed off of each other and saying, do you think of what, what age rate, you know, what, what um, uh, race do you think it is? And, and try to build a description of the suspect not psychological, because John always, John Douglas always said, I can't go out and find a, a manic depressive uh, killer. You know, <laughs> I've got to have something, something concrete. You know, how tall is he? What does he look like? Does he have a car? You know, all those back and forth stuff. So um, that's why the behavioral piece became so important. But we never wrote that up because we had spent so much time on the first project that by the time we got to the second, it was well into the 90s. And uh, people, they were starting to retire, going off, and they were making, you know, going to court and doing all kinds of important things. And I had left, uh, I, I had been at BC, then had gone to University of Pennsylvania, and then went back to, to BC. So uh, it, was, it was left. And it wasn't until, but I had all the data. I think that's the important thing. Uh, luckily, I had all of the transcripts for those meetings, the profiling sessions, and what we call the rating sessions. I mean, this was the methodology piece is what I contributed to this project so that it would be a piece of uh, very credible, we felt, <laughs> hoped, uh, to the uh, scientific world, to law enforcement, but to psychology, to nursing, to any other discipline. And, and that's the piece that we just finally finished because uh, Stephen Constantine happened to take a position in our um, marketing and communication uh, department in the School of Nursing. And he was a writer. That was his, his graduate work was in writing. And uh, so he, he could put it into better language. I, I would write articles that are kind of boring. You know, they're scientific and journals and dull. He, and he was able to put them into more, more easy to read. 
uh, language. That's great. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't imagine kind of the whole process. I it I mean, you see it in movies and um, kind of it's kind of romanticized. I think it's you know you hear yeah. good cop bad cop thing like um, just trying to break break the abuser down or whoever it is. Um, and obviously there's so much that goes into it. So that's really interesting here. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, like moving forward, like how closely did you interact with the convicts? Um, was it more just like a, a distant approach um, or did you really kind of like follow them, stay close with them? Um, and was there ever a point where like you'd see them crack or um, really start to break down or how, how was that? Yeah, that's really a two, two-part answer to your question. First, uh, at the time that we were analyzing the data, we have the videos, you know, the interviews or, or the written out part. And so that we would pour over and we came up with the patterns. That, that was important of, of how to, and these we were beginning to see the patterns. That's what you want to see when you're looking at serial kinds of cases. But um, the second part is I'm still in touch with some of them. And uh, as recently as last week, talked with, with one of them. So I do follow them as I, if I can, uh, as to how, because they're all in prison, if they haven't been executed. I mean, these are serial killers. These are pretty bad, bad boys, right? So, uh, uh, but I do like to see how their life goes and what it's like. I have several on death row and I am going to be trying to talk with them uh, just to get their experience. What is it like to know at any point the, the legislature can change, uh, like North Carolina, where a number of them are, that um, uh, they have a stay on execution. But what if they lift that? You know, it will be number one, I guess, to, to uh, be executed. So from that standpoint, and uh, as I said, trying to get any new information that we can. Uh, just so we have that as a backlog. That's great. Yeah, I actually didn't know um, it would be something like, oh, you'd stay in contact with them over the years, but that that's really cool. Um, and it and learned, probably Yeah, I learned that from Bob Ressler. Um, Bob died in, I think, 2013, and his widow gave me a lot of his materials, and one of which was this big box full of letters. And he kept in touch with some of the, must have been some of his favorites. And they, they had, I don't have that kind of a back and forth conversation. Now we can use the telephone. So I have, I've been talking with some of them by telephone. They can call you and they have 20, sec, uh, 20 minutes to talk. And then this, this buzzer comes on and said, you have one, 60 more seconds. And you have to, you have to finish your call. It's really quite interesting. But at any rate, Bob was, would keep in touch and it isn't unusual for agents because they become pretty immersed in, in, in the case to, uh, and I think they do it. Bob was especially a very kind uh, person. I think it, uh, it was a morale builder, if you will, to keep them, you know, being on death row is not very happy place to be. Yeah. How, how was it talking with them? Are they still kind of in good spirits or not as much. <laughs> uh, no, you know they have their own community there, and serial killers are not considered. They're not like uh, child molesters, which are kind of low on the totem pole, but that's kind of a, a badge that they were. But um, I will say that they take if they were leaders, they would take it up. I, I'm thinking Marty Rissell, That's in the book. Uh, he he loves sports, and he organized the baseball team, and so he's done a lot with sports down in. Uh, uh, Pocahontas, Virginia Corrections, 
some of the others have done other kinds of things. Um, I know Henry Wallace, who's in the book, has uh, he's really a, kind of a leader on death row. He's on death row, and he um, was, thinks he's going to be able to get some of the other inmates to talk about you know, getting away with murder. I, I really want to get see if we can get more information to law enforcement of how these guys were able to really put it over on the police. And uh, one of my other uh, more recent cases, he's on death row too, down at the same the same unit. <laughs> the two of them were talking together, and David said, "I know her. She testified at my trial." <laughs> so they <laughs> throwing my my name around, yeah. But anyway, the uh, I've done about six, half a dozen death row, death penalty cases. And, and I, I like to do those because you get to talk to them and really try to find out what was going on in their heads when, when they committed such atrocities. So, What is what is kind of like the theory that you come up with, like with, with most serial killers, I guess? Like what, what's their motivation behind it? Is it just that they're bad people or is that um, they kind of grew up with? some kind of yeah. well we found a couple of things when they grow up with um tough really tough childhood not all of them but most of them i'm thinking of uh, i think it was bundy that didn't but a couple mo- most of them do and they either have the uh, uh the absent father so you don't have any male authority that these uh, young boys would get to identify with and so they're left with the mother who has to be both mother and father. And so they often will say, well, she was very strict and mean and all of that. And she probably was. I mean, I don't think these kids would be boys were any angels, you know, (laughs) in terms of growing up. So that's one thing. But then the second thing I think that's important is that there is something in their childhood that, that they kind of obsess over. And it could be something totally innocuous to others, but they just latch on to it. And I'm thinking of Henry Wallace, it's in the book, where he witnessed as a, I don't know, he was like seven or eight, six, seven or eight, but that age range, a gang rape of a neighborhood girl. And he was fascinated with it. Uh, at the time he saw it, he witnessed it. And then the next day, I guess the police came to arrest the, the, the boys that did this. And he found that exciting also. And he really said that was something there are other, obviously other things in his childhood, but that was something from a rape standpoint that really he just over and over. So that's, his, and then the childhood issue. And then that, uh, th- then there easily could be what we call, um, um, sometimes it's just called an unusual stressor or a grievance where they start to negatively look at something and the bullying, it could be that, or it could be picked on, or there's something different about them. And that festers also. And then that develops into the, the, what we call the the thought pattern or the fantasy. And at some point they start acting it out. And if you can't, you've got to get to it early to see if you can intervene on it. That's one of the big areas that FBI is looking at now is the, can, can we, predict earlier before the acting out. I mean, that would be huge uh, if we could, especially young people, young young males, it's going to be males. There are not too many females that are into this kind of um, violence. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I know, especially with school shootings going on and, um, you know, mm-hmm. seemingly it happens so much earlier, maybe because of um, like electronics, people are getting 
too involved yeah. in social media or whatever it is. Um, it's just happening so much earlier and when to kind of stop it early on is, is yeah. a big issue, which you're, which you're covering. So that's, that's really, yeah. Cool. And I, you're right. It's the media that has advanced, if you will, the internet has advanced over the years. Look, we're talking about what was going on with these guys when they were just kids and they were being raised in the what, uh, 50s, 60s and 70s. There's a big difference now in the, uh, in the year 2000. So, yeah. So we need to relook at it, revisit it, and see what the differences are. So anyone out there that is interested in the research, there's plenty of opportunity for it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and actually, kind of uh, transitioning, um, you actually have a Netflix show modeled after you um, called Mind Hunter, um, <laughs> which is a kind of a more interesting um, kind of view of of the work that you do, um, kind of as a as a true crime show on on Netflix, which um, is very popular among teenage audiences and, and that, things like that. Um, how do you think that uh, the show portrayed your work? Um, like what, what was the kind of building of the, of the TV show? What was that like? Yeah. Um, I would say that the, the earlier show that really started our work or, or traded on our work, I should say is uh, criminal minds. And if you notice early on, I don't know how much now, I haven't watched it that much, but the, um, the victimology, they always start off with victimology and what kind of a person would do it, which is really based on, on our work. So I thought that was good. But up to Mindhunter, um, I, the cases were good. They were, well, they should have been because we had the data for them, you know, so they, it should have been good. What wasn't good, and I've heard a lot of comments on, is the way they portrayed the backgrounds of um, Bob Ressler, John Douglas, and myself. They had crazy kinds of backgrounds. It wouldn't have been that hard to find out a little bit more what we really were. You know, they had me as a psychologist. I'm not. I'm a psychiatric nurse, and I, I, I don't like it when they don't portray me as in my true profession. So there are other things, and also um, uh, the other matters. When they, when my son, one of my sons, watch it, he says, "Mother, what have you not told us?" Because they had me portrayed as as a gay woman, and so I, uh, I didn't. I said, "Well, I guess there's some things about me you don't know, right?" What can I say? <laughs> um, but the cases were good. The cases were good. And, and the cases in uh, on uh, Killer by Design is uh, maybe we will have our own type of mind hunter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Especially, yeah, the uh, Killer by Design. Um, I, I think kind of similar. I haven't read it myself, but um, is it was it's mostly about cases, um, kind of the cases that you covered or. Um, no, it's uh, it's about the, the profiling. It's the profiling piece that, and how they came about it. it. In a way, is a history of profiling done at the Behavioral Science Unit. It starts, uh, Bob Ressler really was a protege, if you will, of the two who had very informally uh, started it. That would have been um, Howard Teton and Patrick Mulvahey. And they did it in a way that a lot of professors at BC do it. At least I try to do it. You sit around informally with a group of students and talk about cases. And so that's what they would do. The, the agent would come and they'd say, you know, I've got this case, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the era, that's the um, uh, background that Ressler used. And then he needed a partner. They always work in pairs. So he uh, got John Douglas, who was new to the unit. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know what he was getting into. <laughs> and uh, he's pretty much, a, you know, he had a great sense of humor. 
so uh, he he joined wrestler and so that's the uh that's how the it went and then i in the book i talk about the first generation profiler second generation and third i really was with them up through three generations if you will and i think it makes a difference as to whether they are wrestler trained or douglas trained it's like any group that starts out they're going to be your best people to carry on the tradition uh, and it worked for the FBI because then they put profile coordinators in every state at the, in the major cities. So Boston, you know, has a coordinator. Uh, New, all of them have a coordinator. So it has really advanced the tradition of something that started out very simply back at the behavior science unit back in the, I think that would have started probably in the 60s. It could have gone back that early. Yeah, you talk a lot about um, like having a, um, leaders of these groups, uh, did it really matter, um, you know, which kind of mentor was leading the case or did, did everyone kind of have their own unique approach to handling cases or, or profiling? Well, that's what we try to get into. That's the question of, uh, can you teach it? And we're not convinced you can teach it because so much of it is just um, basic understanding so that's one of the reasons we were, they were hesitant to do anything about profiling early on. But they all have their unique way of looking at things. And as I said, we do that in the book. For example, one, one case that we start off with is why is the first victim, who is a 12-year-old boy, just dumped at the side of the road? Why is his next victim, three months later, found into the forest, in the woods? Same offense. So you ask that question and you can get different answers. Uh, one of them, what I remember Wrestler said, he felt that the killer would have been someone who was not tall, not strong, not old. And so he just, and he, it was his first kill, they think. Turned out it wasn't, but they thought. And he just left the body. Whereas the second body, he made him walk in the woods and then killed them and then left the body so he had learned if you will okay that's not what Roy Hazelwood say Roy Hazelwood had a different way of explaining the very same thing but he said that he thought that he might have uh, picked a smaller boy carried it still carried him in uh, that would not necessarily uh, th there was one other thing with that it was the it was in December and it was the first snow and so you could see two sets of footprints going into the woods and only one set coming back out. So that would be another way to, to look at it. So I'm just saying those are different ways that they would still come up with a, with the same uh, characteristic that they wanted to get back to the local police that had were trying to work the case. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I'm totally new to myself. So like just understanding kind of the method, um, the different methods that go into the process is, is really cool. Um, and I know you've talked about a lot of your colleagues um, kind of as like a wrap up question. Um, I know you've done um, a lot of work at DC, um, taught teaching some classes now, I think. Um, what kind of um, research or um, just kind of guidance from BC have you gotten um, that's maybe propelled your work in any way, if it has? Oh, well, as an academic, you have to be doing research. I mean, you shouldn't be a professor if you're not doing research, right? So um, the research, it's interesting because I had, uh, we, we had done a paper on this early, but uh, 
we've I've teamed up with some other persons, not at BC, but at BC as well as other places, and got interested in this uh, dismemberment issue. Those cases were coming up. I had just done a dismemberment issue. I told you he's now on death row, so uh, I, I've been able to talk to him about it. But we, um, so that's been an area of, of interest. And why do they do it? Why don't they just kill the, the, the victim? You know, why do they have to then cut up the victim? There's something else going on. And so we felt that that as a motive was important to do. And did that give you a different set of characteristics to look for? So that's one thing. And then the other is in the field of domestic violence that many, many women are strangled when they are killed. And we have access to a serial killer database out of Florida that has over 5,000 cases, if you can imagine. And we're looking at uh, a, a sample of a, of a thousand. And we've done three, we have students helping us. We meet every Friday and go over cases from all over the country. We even have someone from um, Germany, I think it is. So anyway, what does, is it my research question, is there a difference between someone who manually strangles versus someone who uses a ligature? And we have a small number who actually uh, smother or asphyxiate. Is there a different motive? Does that, will that tell us anything about the lethality? We want to be able to get some risk factors to warn people about. Uh, because domestic violence often when it's with a partner or with someone they know won't necessarily be murdered the first time. That they, So when should we really warn someone they've got to get out of a bad relationship? So those are just two of the of the examples. Yeah, um, that I mean that's that's really interesting. Um, I mean, do you see crime decreasing in the future? I know it's so hard to tell, but ever since you know you started working, do you see it changing at all? I don't. No, numbers are going up. Uh, you might say we didn't do a very good job. No, I think that more people are are out there, but there are, I think, uh, some cultural factors. And in fact, there's a very interesting book and Gary Brucata is a psychologist from New York is joins us. We use uh, his work. He wrote the new evil and looks at the social factors over time since the 1960s that they believe has had an influence on why these, um, these characteristics and they have 22 <laughs> levels, if you will, of, of uh, lethality. These are all cases where somebody is murdered. And so uh, they classified in this 22 cases, uh, levels. So that's very interesting too. Well, um, that's all I have, but thank you so much for coming on. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add, but um, please uh, to all our listeners, make sure to check out our Killer by, a Killer by Design. Um, and thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoyed it.